morning. It's great seeing you all. Thank you for being here this morning. It's our privilege to sing together, to pray together, to look into God's Word together. And that's what we're going to do. So if you had closed your Bibles or you closed your devices or whatever, we're going to be back in Psalm 61. If you left them open, well, good on you. Um, we're going to be there. Psalm 61. As we begin, I have a question. How many of you have ever been on a glass bottom bridge? A glass bottom bridge. Okay, you have a handful of you? Okay. Uh, a glass bottom bridge is exactly what it sounds like uh, a bridge, except the bottom of the bridge is made of glass. Okay, and the, the goal is obviously to see through what you're walking on. Fun fact you know that China? has over 2,000 of these glass bottom bridges. Over 2,000. Um, the largest one in the world, it's the Guinness Book of World Records, um, is a quarter of a mile long. It's over 700 feet high. Um, and it was designed not only to bring the visitors uh, the thrill of being able to see down below over 70 stories through the glass, but it was also designed to swivel. It shakes as you're going across. So, so this is, this is a, a crazy, crazy bridge. Um, but it's the longest in the world. Now, there's actually one, I guess, that's higher, and it's, uh, I guess, close to 1,000 feet high off the ground. Um, not every bridge is designed uh, with the ability to swivel. Some are, are steady, but there's one bridge, I guess, to amp up the thrill for those going across the bridge. Uh, it was designed so that when you walk on the glass, it sounds like it's breaking. Um, and actually, and I don't know how this works, but it, 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 like when you walk on it, it looks like it's cracking too. So you have just this feel of being hundreds of feet off the ground, Walking, looking down, and um, I, I, I've never done a, a glass bottom bridge. I know that, that in different places they have kind of like these sky walks or something like that where it's kind of like juts off the side of the a building. I know that Grand Canyon, I guess they have a semicircle, something like that, where there's a glass bottom and, and you can look down through it. Um, but what I'm told, for those, I, I've talked to a couple of people that have been to these, what I'm told is that when people go on these bridges, the responses are, are really diverse. That it's not uncommon for people to walk out on the bridge only to get on their hands and knees and start crawling because they're so terrified. I mean, adults. In fact, this one bridge that's over a quarter mile long, they actually have employees stationed at different parts of the bridge to be able to help people back to their feet and get them to the other side or get them back to where they went. Um, interestingly enough, though, there's people who these bridges don't affect at all, like even, you know, stories of little children jumping up and down on the bridge and just having, you know, this wonderful time, like it, it's the greatest thing in the world. And meanwhile, adults are crawling as if they're, they're children. Like I said, I've, I've never been on one of these. Um, but I think there is a question, though, that all of us can answer in the same way when it comes to these bridges, when it comes to their design, um, and when it comes to people going on them. Are those bridges safe? Are they safe? Well, I mean, would you actually open up a bridge for people to walk across, for people to go on, if it wasn't safe? And the answer is, 
It depends. Right? Safe is kind of like this really fluid word. It depends on what safe or how you define safety. The bridge is structurally or safe. To my knowledge, no one's fallen through any of the bridges. I mean, they're walking on glass. It might even look like it's breaking. It sounds like it's breaking, but to my knowledge, no one's fallen through. They're safe, right? Well, tell that to the person crawling on their hands and knees, right? As we look at Psalm chapter 61, you read it. The author here is David, and David is not feeling safe. Whatever safety is, David wasn't experiencing it. We see that right from the get-go. Hear my cry, give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth I called you when my heart is faint. You know, different scholars look at this chapter and they understand David to be writing uh, at, at different times, but many scholars agree that this was written by David when he had been chased out of Jerusalem by his son, Absalom. If you're familiar with that story in 2 Samuel 15 through 17, his son sought to overthrow him and actually was looking to kill him. He was being counseled, being advised to kill his father. And so David took men and left Jerusalem and went away. And so you kind of see that there uh, at the end of verse 2, from the ends, or the beginning of verse 2, from the ends of the earth. He's not at home. David was geographically unsafe. He wasn't at home. He was emotionally unsettled, right? When my heart is overwhelmed. And in truth, domestically, I mean, his own son chasing after him. There's no safety in family there. And if you really want to dig a little bit deeper into the story... Why was Absalom chasing after him? Well, it was David's own fault. I mean, that whole situation was brought on by David's sin with Bathsheba. This was predicted by Nathan the prophet. Your family is going to come up against you. So as David is running from his son, he's in this position of distress, even going so far as to losing faith. He had no one but himself to blame for. David's in a position to where the foe that he had a strong tower against, right? Verse 3, a tower of strength against the enemy, his own son. This is the position that many believe David to be in. He wasn't feeling safe. He wasn't safe. Yet, this is a short chapter eight verses. And when you start in verse 1 and you get to verse 8, there's a pretty incredible transition that takes place. You have this emotional cry of despair in verse 1 to a joyful and resolute worship in verse 8. Understanding how this transition took place is to understand how David understood what safety is. And since this is a hymn, notice the beginning, for the choir director on string instruments. This is not just something that David kind of wrote and stuck in his pocket. This is what the nation of Israel would sing, both then and later. 
The understanding of safety here in this chapter, what we're going to be looking at, was something that God's people should enthusiastically and wholeheartedly affirm. So, today, we're going to see how David understands safety. We're going to see it really in two ways. How David understands safety. And we're going to arrive at a, a conclusion here. First of all, what's safety to David? First of all, safety is God listening to him. God listening to him. We see that? very first words. Hear my cry, O God. Give heed to my prayer. These are desperate pleas from David to God. Because God seems very far away. From the ends of the earth, I cry to you. This could have been geography. I, I personally believe it is. But this could also have been spiritually. God, I know you say you're close, but right now you feel very far away. That's actually a common lament in the Psalms. From the ends of the earth I cry to you. If I'm on one end, you seem to be on the other. You know, when you look at Israel's history, especially given that this was written for the nation of Israel, and you consider that Israel itself was taken into captivity, this would have really resonated with those in Assyria and those in Babylon after taken into captivity. I mean, they would have been able to say themselves, from the ends of the earth I cry to you. Not in the temple of Jerusalem, but the ends of the earth. In an unfamiliar, uncomfortable place where they had been displaced. And it is interesting when we read that David says, when my heart is faint, I cry to you. Doesn't it seem, and, and maybe you've personally experienced this, doesn't it seem that when you're going through a trial and you're in an unfamiliar area, that trial is amplified? Like if you're not home, something about sleeping in your own bed, right? Just being home, there's familiarity. David didn't enjoy this. He wasn't enjoying the familiarity. The Israelites, when they had been taken to captivity, they weren't enjoying familiarity of home. I think you just look at the nations overall. In the course of human history, those Christians who perhaps have been displaced. We think of our brothers and sisters in Christ in Ukraine. They aren't home. And when they plaintively cry to God for him to hear them, it's with much discomfort. Home is a place of security and peace, and David didn't have it. Now, I said to you before that safety was God hearing him. Safety is God hearing us because, as I said before, sometimes it feels like God doesn't hear us. This phrase that David says, when my heart is overwhelmed, this was more than just him being emotional. This was him more than just being overwhelmed by the circumstance. This was him wavering in his faith. This was him wondering if what he knew to actually be true was in fact true. I'm losing hope. That's what David was going through. And the circumstances often point to us when we are in situations where we know what's to be true, and in fact, what we actually see or experience seems to contradict that. 
And so what does David say? Lead me to the rock, verse 2. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. This is actually, if you're familiar with the Psalms, this is a phrase that might be familiar to you. Okay, lead me to the rock that's higher than I. The, the, the wording here is a picture of someone who's higher and someone who's lower. And someone who's lower is climbing to go higher, and that someone who is higher is reaching down and helping them up. Because higher is better. Higher is safer. So David is saying, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And he's not necessarily talking about a physical rock. I think in verse 3, we see what he's talking about. He's talking about God. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. When David was losing hope, when David was concerned, when he wasn't home, what did he do? He didn't point the finger at God and blame him for the circumstances. No, he looked to God and cried to him for help and found that God only grew in intimacy with him during that trial. And we see that in verses 3 and 4. There's actually four words in verses 3 and 4 that describe God. First of all, he's a refuge. You have been a refuge for me. Second of all, a tower of strength. Okay, so you have refuge, just kind of like this generic term for God's protection. Then you have a tower of strength. So this would have been something common around a city. There's a city wall and there's towers there that help keep the wall up, gave it security. But then in verse 4, let me dwell in your tent. There's a residence where God lives. In this circumstance with David, there was no temple. There was a tabernacle. So this would have been a place of worship. And then in verse 4, at the end, let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. There's personal intimacy with God. Look what David is experiencing. When he calls out to God, when he cries out to God, God provides safety in the form of listening by growing intimacy so that God no longer feels like he's way out there. But rather, David understands he's right here. This cry to God, this rock that is higher than him, and this refuge found in God would undermine any sense of self-assurance. Because, as I mentioned before, sometimes God feels very distant in our trials. But other times, we look at our trials and we think, I got this. I'm okay. Sometimes, in our difficulties, we're convinced that we can actually handle these difficulties by ourselves. If you've ever had the opportunity of teaching someone small, maybe a child, maybe your child, maybe a nephew, niece, whatever, how to ride a bike. Ever done that before? Ever teach someone how to ride a bike? Okay, riding a bike is one of those kind of like tricky things where, you know, the consequences of not being able to ride the bike, you know, there's the social consequences, everybody else is riding it, I want to ride one too but also like the physical consequences, you know, crashing. So like we have these different ways of being able to help children ride the bike. And sometimes the children, when they feel very confident, they're like, no, 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 I got this. Don't, don't help me. Let me go. You know, you're holding the back of the, the seat and, and they just want you to go. Or they want to go and they want you to leave them alone. But then they're wobbling and, and they look, why didn't you help me? Why, you know, like, where were you? Why didn't you stop me from falling? And it's a uh, falling. It's like a no-win situation. 
I could sit there and help you, but no, you don't want that. But if you fall, it's my fault. Been in that boat? In a way, that's kind of how a lot of people look at God through difficulties. Saying, I got this, I'm okay, but when the difficulty knocks the bike over, God, why would you allow this to happen? And so it's not uncommon for mankind to look at God kind of like, and this is what I call, God is my training wheels. God, sometimes life gets wobbly. And it's just nice to have those training wheels there. So when I wobble, the training wheels keep me up. Oh, training wheels keep me up. But hey, once I get the hang of this, thanks God, I can take it from here. Take off the training wheels. I can ride this bike. I'm good. God is my own private set of training wheels. So when the train gets a little bit rocky, all right, let's get those training wheels back on. God, I need you. Don't let me fall. But once it gets smooth again, thanks, God, I can take it from here. David, David's rock, not David's training wheels, was his God. So David's safety was found in his God hearing him. But the second way we see David understanding safety in this passage is God not just hearing him, but God keeping his promises. So how do we understand safety? First of all, God hears, God listens. But then second of all, God keeps his promises. Let's look at verse 5. For you have heard my vows. Oh God, you've given me the inheritance of those who fear your name. In these verses here, we actually see three different promises that point us to another theme that it's really important to understand as we read this passage. Okay? You've given me the inheritance of those who fear your name. You will prolong the king's life. His years will be as many generations. He will abide before God forever, appoint loving kindness and truth that they may preserve him. What's he talking about there? What's he alluding to? Well, what we need to do is go back earlier to a conversation that God had with David. So let's turn to 2 Samuel. Keep your finger here. We'll be coming back. 2 Samuel. And we're going to be in chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. All right, we're going to start in verse 8. Now, therefore, you shall say to my servant David, this is God talking to Nathan the prophet, so Nathan the prophet speaking on behalf of God, okay? Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be a ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you've gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. 
I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. Again, God is telling this to David. God is promising. We would say God is making a covenant with David. Okay, verse 11, there in the middle. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and with the stroke of the sons of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Note verse 16 and 17. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So going back to Psalm 61, reading the end of verse 5, you have given me the inheritance of those who fear your name. You will prolong the king's life. His years will be as many generations. He will abide before God forever, appoint loving kindness and truth that they may preserve him. What is David doing? He's rehearsing what has been promised to him. He's rehearsing it because in his present circumstances, the certainty of those promises could be called into question. God, this is what you promised to me. I'm struggling to believe it. David is a human being. David is not omniscient. But God always keeps his promises. And it did David well. In fact, it granted him safety to rehearse those promises, to remind himself, if I can put it this way, to teach himself what had been promised. Now, as we see in the circumstance, there's also what we would call an eschatological flavor or an end times flavor to this as well. Where these promises, especially when they include the word forever, that word forever means something. It's not just you know, exaggeration for effect. That word forever means something, and it means something when there isn't a physical king present. David's not there. There was someone trying to take his place. But think even beyond David. What about those Jews in exile? When they're reading this, what king? What about us right now? Have you seen King Jesus? And yet he is king. We can rehearse these promises. Though we are not the nation of Israel, they are still just as true. 
that the Messiah, King Jesus, will sit on David's throne. He will reign. His promises are true, regardless what you see on the news or what goes on underneath your roof. David understands safety and security by God hearing his cry and God keeping his promises. And the outcome of this is feeling safe. Look at verse 8. So I will sing a praise to your name forever. I doubt when David sang praise to God's name forever, it was monotone, it was subdued. I'm guessing there was a sense of maybe joy or assurance. It didn't come like that. It's not like David flips the switch and good emotions. But part of safety is feeling safe. Remember, David, heard, David assured himself that God keeps his promises, that God hears his cry. And so the outcome, this response really is the fact that what changed isn't so much the circumstance itself, it's David. David is changing. That's the point. David is still in the scenario, verses 1 and 2, right? Remember, David's still in the ends of the earth. His heart is still prone to being overwhelmed by his circumstances. It wasn't as if God snatched him out of that and plops him into a nice, comfy, cozy place back home in his bed. No. David changed. David's response to safety really had two parts. It was continual praise to God, as we see this. But I want to take some time here on the second part. We're just going to settle in for a little bit. The second part... The very last phrase of verse 8, that I may pay my vows day after day. Okay, so this is the second time the word vows shows up in this chapter. Verse 5, David says, you've heard my vows. And then David says in verse 8, I'm going to keep my vows. But notice the time frame. Day after day. Day after day. If I can put it this way, this is the ongoing, dare I say, mundane nature of trusting in God, of following God. There is trust here. I'm going to keep my vows day after day, even when circumstances point otherwise. That David knows his obedience is pointless. But I could also say, I think we could also say that there's resilience here in that the safety provided by God in this circumstance enabled David to make spiritual progress, even to thrive in the face of overwhelming circumstances. So, let me just share a little bit with you. The last thing I want to do is run roughshod over anyone's situation in this room. Because when you look around, there's a few hundred of you, and you all bring a context. I don't know what your morning was like. I don't know what your week was like. But you're all bringing something. We all have a context. 
Pastor Tim encourages us often, okay, consider one another. That when we come, we're with other people. And where they are, where they've been, emotionally, spiritually, who knows? They do. You do. The last thing I want to do, though, is run roughshod or be insensitive to anyone's context. I want to point us out to the reality in this passage, though, especially that God would have his children keep their vows to him day after day. Now, what do I mean? Like David in the psalm, some of you have experienced great hurt, might be experiencing it even today. There's some, there's some in this room. When you first came to Grace Church, you shared just where you are, your circumstances, you were encouraged to come and to heal. Just come and heal. Hear the word. Be with people that love you and heal. And those wounds that you had could have come from a lot of different places. Circumstances, people, Christians. And they could have happened and been happening for a long, long time to where not only is there the hurt there on a human level, there's a hurt there from a spiritual level, as if God seems very, very far away, as if he's at the end of the other side of the earth that you're on. I've not been in ministry as long as others, but I have heard on multiple occasions something to the effect of, Pastor, we want to come to a place where we can just heal. And you know what? I pray, and our leadership, our elders and deacons pray, and I would say our membership as well. We pray that this could be a place that that would happen and should happen. That there is a place here where God's word will be preeminent, God's love will be obvious. I mean, just think 1 Corinthians 13. We could be doing a whole lot of stuff, but if we don't have love, it's not very valuable. In fact, it's worthless. And in 1 Corinthians 13, what's the first characteristic of love? Love is patient. Pastor Steve prayed this earlier. Love is kind. What's the time frame on how long it takes a person to heal? Seriously, how long does that take? Can you, can you put a time frame on that? I don't know what your situations are. Neither do your brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't know that you can necessarily put a time frame on complete healing if in this lifetime that's a possibility. Maybe it's just we're going to live in a world that's waiting for Jesus to come until that completely takes place. But in light of everything I just shared, I want, us to bring, I want to bring us back to verse 8. Understanding that verse 8 takes place in the context of verses 1 and 2. Verse 8. I may pay my vows day after day. I will praise your name forever. Verse 1. Hear my cry, God. Give heed to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I called you when my heart is faint. 
process of healing, where I'm going with this, the process of healing can never allow us, and I'm talking to my brothers and sisters in Christ, it can never allow us to neglect or excuse us from living out the fundamental aspects of our faith. If I am born again, my day after day fulfilling of my vows, I will love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what a Christian does. I will love my neighbor as, I, as myself. I will deny myself, take up my cross daily, and follow Jesus Christ. Those things are not contingent on how healed you are. Those things are fundamental to who we are in Christ. Now, it is true that the degree to which I honor those commands will ebb and flow, and the wounds from others, or even those wounds that are self-inflicted, as is, was David's case, may impact my desire to honor those vows. There are days I do not want to love my neighbor as myself. For a lot of reasons. Or love God with all my heart. Or take up my cross daily. However, safety is where God wants me to be. Safety is what God defines as safe. Some of us, if I could use perhaps a crude illustration, have a pretty rough hand that we were dealt. Rougher than others. Yet God calling us to be his children, hearing our cry, keeping our promises, God is producing a child that is growing in resilience so that our growth may not be paralyzed by the circumstances we're facing. We're not putting a time frame or a calendar on what that should look like, but it should look like something that looks like a Christian. Again, I don't know all of your situations, but if you claim the name of Christ, there are things that will be true of you. So practically, I think we as Christians can grow in several ways here. First of all, we are called to love one another which means that we will be patient and we will trust the work that God is doing in others. As I read my Bible, I don't read anywhere where the Bible tells a Christian to get over it or suck it up. But however, we as Christians are given promises through God's word. My God will supply all of your needs. I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the all things in that passage is being content in any and every circumstance. God may have directed your life to a point where you feel like you are on that glass bridge that we talked about at the beginning paralyzed by fear, hurt by previous circumstances, to where you feel like you cannot move forward until you are safely out of that circumstance. 
You're afraid that you've been hurt before and you aren't able to take that hurt again. You look at the situation and you say, no way. Just like those people who are on their hands and knees on that glass bridge, there's no way. But here is the point, and really it's the point of this psalm. God gets to define what safety is. God knew this bridge was coming all along. And he is with you and will walk with you across that bridge towards the destination he intended for you. And not only is he walking with you, he is changing you along the way to make you more like him and to grow in your love and trust for him. And if that wasn't enough, you know those little assistants that were posted along that bridge? God gives us spiritual siblings who are walking their own glass bridge. You are not alone. Now, for those who are not Christians, if you do not know Christ, I'm not going to mince words. There's a word in verse 5 that's really important. You have given me the inheritance of those who fear your name. This safety that God promises is much like an inheritance. If I were to go into your family after perhaps a loved one passes away and the last will and testament is read and, and the assets are distributed amongst the family. If I were to go into that meeting and somehow say, hey, I get some too, that would be a little out of order, wouldn't it? That would be a little odd. That wouldn't be appropriate. It would be wrong. Why? I'm not part of your family. These assurances of safety were designed for those who are God's children and the recipients of his inheritance. If you are not born again, if you have not recognized God as creator and recognized your own sins separating you from him to where you need a savior from that sin, if you have not repented of that sin, confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he died but then also lives, then these promises of safety are not intended for you right now. But here's the good part. God is in the business of adoption. These assurances are not for you because you have a rock that is higher than the one that David claimed. David said, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. The unbeliever says, I am the rock. My success. My affluence. My job security. My children's success. These are the things that secure me. You know, in a weird way, anyone can come crying to God when they're at the end of their own rope. What the Christian does, though, 
is the Christian cries to God even when there's plenty of rope left. We really learn a lot about who ourselves, not when we're in the most desperate situation, but when we're in the most comfortable situation. Who is our God? What is our rock? However, God often uses the removal of that safety, the removal of that self-defined rock to get our attention and to point it to him. C.S. Lewis famously said this, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God wants you to make him your refuge. When your heart is overwhelmed, when you have no longer any faith in humanity, look to the rock that is higher than you. He knows your situation, your fear, your frustrations. You look at around you, you look at what's going on in society, and you scratch your head, and you ask your coworkers, what is going on? And you have no answer. God has the answer, and his name is Jesus. God was not designed to be a set of training wheels to have your life be nice and cozy. Sometimes God in his love allows your rock, your security, to crumble underneath your feet to where you have nowhere else to look. What is safety then? Safety is that God will hear your cry. Safety is that God will keep his promises. Are you safe today? To my knowledge, nothing has changed in whatever your circumstances are from the beginning to the end, from verse 1 to verse 8. But if you don't know Christ, today can be the day where everything changes. And for those who are in Christ... What is your safety? Don't settle for cheap substitutes. Don't settle for things that you know will pass away. And perhaps maybe God is using the ongoing circumstances for you to draw back to who you are in your identity, i.e. a child of God. And for your attention to be brought back to those fundamental things of what makes you a Christian. If you're waiting for the circumstance to pass, then I would challenge you, how long? Is that what God would have? To just put pause on growth? On doing the things that are basic to who we are in Christ? May God use his word to change us through the power of his spirit. I've been immensely convicted working through this because, frankly, paralysis is easy. And sometimes it just feels natural. But God would have us grow to be more like him. And if you aren't in him, God would have these circumstances come so that you might come to know him. Talk to the person that invited you here or talk to someone who you know attends here and has just this difference I'll finish with this. I, I, I had the opportunity of leading a Bible study in an assisted living facility once a week here in the city of Menor. And um, this past week, there were two ladies that, that I was doing this Bible study with. And um, 
when I have the opportunity to preach, admittedly, I, I use the, the passage that I'm going to preach on for my challenge for that week. It kind of helps, you know, freshen things and, and, and get them good. So I shared Psalm 61 with these two ladies. And after we were done, both ladies who are in Christ were speaking of how they saw Jesus in one another. One of the ladies had recently lost her husband, and the other lady had recently lost a child. And they're just talking to each other. I don't know how you get through it, but I saw God in you, and I saw, and they're just chat, 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 chat. And it was like I had the front row seat to seeing God's grace. What a blessing that was. Some of you are doing that very same thing. And I praise God for that. Some of you are being encouraged to live that same way. Be encouraged, not because of me, but because the Holy Spirit through his word would lead you to change. Okay, let's pray. God, you're good. We have lots of circumstances with which we don't understand. We have everything, though, to give thanks for because it is the will of God that we be thankful in any and every circumstance. Lord, that's not to somehow put on glasses that make everything that's bad good in disguise. That's not to call sin something other than sin, and it's certainly not to, to look at the reality of a fallen world and say, well, maybe we're overbaking it. No, Lord. We're, dealing, we're living in a fallen world. And many times we bear the scars of living in a fallen world. But as we see David cry out to you, as we see David trust in your promises, and then, Lord, as we see David vow to praise you and to live in obedience, God, may we model that. Lord, help us to become more like your son. And may we, Lord, grow in love and patience with one another, pointing people to Christ all along the way. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name.